Welcome to After Hours at the Radio Book Club, a podcast edition of the Radio Book Club, which is a collaboration between KGNU and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU. As always, my co-host is Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. And today we have Jim Davidson from Fort Collins joining us to talk about his latest book, The Next Everest, Surviving the Mountain's Deadliest Day and Finding the Resilience to Climb Again. And resilience is really the theme of the book, Jim. And it's really the theme, I think, of your life because you talk about using the mental fortitude that you have to have to climb Mount Everest and applying that really to everyday life. And one of the things that you talk about in the book is when you summited in 2017, your family had written you letters and notes to help you, spur you on, and you opened them at different points. Talk about the need to have family support and that type of a support system in place when you're doing this because it seems like in addition to the physical element so much of summiting Everest and facing these challenges is mental. Absolutely. I mean if you're going to try and climb a big mountain you're going to need family support because you're away from home. You're very busy for months, maybe a year before you go. So it, it takes away time and resources and money from the family. And your spouse may not love it. Um, I've been married to the same lady for 31 plus years and she doesn't love that I'm a climber. But she knows how important it is to me, and it's my passion. It's how I turn myself into a better version of me. Some people might get that through marathoning or music or meditation. Whatever speaks to you, you should pursue that with all your vigor because that's how you learn better habits and you become a better musician. Responsibility, being part of a team, all those things come from chasing your big goal. And I think that that's really your area to distill your resilience and sharpen it for other areas of life you're going to need it like family problems and financial crisis and pandemics those things happen in life and that's when we have to dip into our resilience well and keep ourselves afloat and keep each other afloat and so i think that pursuing your passion basically fills that resilience well up so for people who aren't planning on summiting Everest or even any other comparable mountain. How do you, when you're doing your motivational speaking and you're talking about this, how, how do you, what advice do you give people to foster that type of resilience? What I suggest is that they pick a goal big enough that it makes them nervous, makes them a little scared, makes them doubt whether they can do it. Because if you pick a goal that's only a smidgen bigger than what you're doing, let's say you can walk three miles a day as your exercise, and you set a goal and say, I wonder if I can walk 3.5 miles. Well, that's not a very big goal. I'll bet you can do it right now. So it's not going to improve you. It's not going to teach you very much. But if you say, I wonder if I could walk 20 miles, that scares you. That's a good goal for you. Because now you know you're going to have to do more and become more. And that's how you expand your capacity and expand your, your resilience. And I think become a better version of you in the long run. So it doesn't matter what you pursue, but pick a goal big enough that it scares you a little bit. Now you're on to something. So it seems like a family member that had a big impact on you was your father. And he was not uh, alive at the time you climbed Everest. But it seems like you always carry him with you. And you worked with him as starting as a young boy, really. And tell us about that experience working with him and how having his presence in your life helps you accomplish what you accomplish in life. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Um, I wrote about my dad in this book and a previous book I wrote with uh, Kevin Vaughn called The Ledge. And it, it, I always knew my dad was important to me, but trying to put these stories down on paper made me realize the depth of it. Um, I was very fortunate. I grew up in a, a nice family in Concord, Massachusetts. My parents were working class folks. And my dad co-owned an industrial painting company. So we painted houses, but more likely we were painting odd things like cranes. Uh, uh, buildings where they assemble submarines, 
um, high voltage electrical towers 200 feet off the ground. And so I started climbing ladders when I was about nine or 10 years old. By 12, I was walking roofs, and I could actually operate a crane by myself before I could drive a car. Uh, very unusual upbringing. Um, and then when I got to be 19, we did these high voltage electrical towers with 200,000 volts running through the lines and were 200 feet off the ground with no safety lines. And all of that kind of informed my climbing, but more importantly, it gave me a chance to work next to my dad, and he would just kind of say things that we needed to, to be safe on the job, but they got right into my bones. Um, when I was climbing a, a tall ladder when we were painting a church, I was scared. I was about 60 feet off the ground on a triple extension ladder, and my dad would yell out, focus on the climb, not the drop, because I was scared. I was afraid of falling off the ladder. And that became a metaphor for me throughout my life, but also high on Everest when I was at literally at 29,000 feet. There was an 8,000 foot drop on one side into Nepal, an 11,000 foot drop down into Tibet, and we're walking this small rib of snow about meter, meter and a half wide. And I was scared, and I almost froze up a little bit, and my dad's words came to me. And it's, it's true, he almost lives on my shoulder a little bit. And as a dad myself with, of two kids, it makes me realize that we can all be the example for each other. So I try and, you know, I've got my own challenges every day, but I try and realize that young people are watching me and they're watching you. And what kind of an example are we gonna set when the pandemic hits, when a car accident happens, when our neighborhood needs some help? What kind of example are we gonna set? Because we're injecting those lessons and resilience into the next generation. Well, one of the ways that you really show resilience and that you write about in, in the book is that you experienced a devastating loss while climbing many years ago when you and a friend, you were uh, climbing Mount Rainier in, in Washington State and the two of you fell into a glacier, essentially. I can't even imagine what that must be like, but your friend didn't make it. You did. And you carry him with you, not just on your climbs, but really throughout your life when you come to these big moments where you need to show resilience. He's there with you. Absolutely. My, my friend Mike Price, uh, we've been climbing partners for years. And as you summarize, we've um, had a snow bridge, which is a bridge made out of snow, collapse and dropped us inside a crack in the ice, a glacial crevasse. And sadly, Mike passed away very quickly, even though I tried to do CPR and bring him back. And I had to climb al alone out of this crevasse. It was very difficult emotionally as well as physically. Um, and that was a devastating experience. And, and I, I mourn the loss of my friend then and now. But he lives on in me. And so I, I kind of see him as a role model for me still. And when I get in a tough situation or I don't know if I can do something, I think about my dad and I think about Mike and I realize that I can apply the lessons that they passed to me and kind of uh, carry their you know, legacy on a little bit. Um, and I also use it as a source of courage because you know, climbing these big mountains, being in these avalanches and earthquakes, all terrifying experiences for me. I'm, I'm not Superman, not by a long shot, but I basically use it as a way to lift myself up. And I think we all have somebody in our lives like that, you know, maybe your grandmother, the person that raised you, your spouse, uh, those kind of people that we look to them. And when you're scared and, and doubtful, look to those sources of resilience that you carry inside yourself. That's how we keep acting in the face of big doubt and big uncertainty. Um, the relationship between climbers when you have a climbing partner, it's not just a buddy to go climbing with. Your life is in their hands and their life is in your hands. And because of the nature of climbing and, you know, the roping and how, how all of 
that comes together. It's in a very tangible way as well as in a, a sort of more existential way as well. So when a climbing partner dies like that, the I mean, we talked in the in the other interview about the, the trauma of living through the earthquake, but there must be so much mental anguish, whether it's survivor's guilt or a sense of responsibility to keep going. I mean, talk us through everything that happens like that when you have a devastating loss like that in such a personal way when you are climbing. Yeah, trauma can come in many forms, even if you're not a climber. It can be a, a personal thing that happened to you. It can be a community thing like this pandemic we've all been through or, or family loss. So trauma is going to happen for sure. And then somehow you have to pick yourself up at some point and continue on. And sometimes people say, oh, I'm glad that thing's over like the pandemic. Let's get back to the way life used to be. Well, it's not gonna go back the same way because that big thing has happened. Life is different now and we're all a little different. So you have to kind of readjust and recalibrate and it can be pretty difficult. And post-traumatic stress is a real thing. Uh, some people get it very strongly from bad things that happen, our frontline people and soldiers and people that suffer accidents. And that post-traumatic stress doesn't go away easy or fast, but psychologists have found something can go along with it. Post-traumatic growth, PTG. And that's kind of the, the payback for having endured that difficult situation and doing some reflection and asking yourself, that was terrible, I don't want to do that again, but rather than, than shy away from that bad thing, what can I take from it? Something that will give me strength or wisdom or commitment and carry it with me forward through life and use that as fuel to face the next either goal or the next challenge. And that post-traumatic growth, it's not simple and it's not easy, but we do it all the time. You think about how you lose someone in your life and you carry them in your heart and your head and eh, maybe you reflect upon them later when you're in a difficult situation. So there's a lot of power in post-traumatic growth and, and a lot of opportunity to become more resilient for that next challenge that comes at us. So I wanna change the subject a little bit to something a little lighter, I guess. Um, you mentioned in passing the, the Japanese climber who I guess it's now the oldest person to summit Everest, but also was the person who skied down Everest. Correct. Having done Everest and how you, how you talk about the grueling nature of going up that mountain, was there at any time where you thought, well, I could ski part of this? Like, what is, how could somebody ski this mountain that you've <laughs> described, you know? Uh, yeah, the, the gentleman, I'm, I'm not going to say his name because I'll mispronounce it probably, but um, he was famous for having, the, there was a movie, a black and white movie made in the 70s, or around 1976 or so, called The Man Who Skied Everest. And he was on skis that were like 10 or 12 feet long, and he didn't ski the entire mountain, but he skied like the steepest part, which is the Lhotse face. I've been a skier my whole life, and I would say the Lhotse face is a sheet of sheer ice, and it's double diamond for like, 2,500 vertical feet. And he skied it, and he, to, to control himself, he pointed his skis straight down the hill, and he deployed a parachute, a, literally a parachute. And he just parachuted straight down the fall line on these skis. Now, he only went forward for, mm, I'd say, about five seconds before he fell, and then tumbled the in, remaining 2,000 feet down. But that speaks to his courage, and he was back on Everest. He's been back to Everest several times. He was trading the record of the old, oldest person to climb the mountain several times with a Nepali man. So, uh, you know... My, my hat is off to him, and no, I never once thought I want to ski this mountain. That'd be a way to get down quickly, because you, you talk about how important it is to get out of that death zone, to get you know, to lower altitude, you know, get below 26,000, but I think when you came down, you were trying to get all the way down to below 23,000, really, on the same day, I think. So I, I guess if you ski and tumble 2,500 feet, that would, that would make that trip a lot quicker. 
Uh, well, it certainly would make it quicker. I'm not sure any safer, though. Um, but you're right. Coming, the death zone is anything above 26,000 feet. And it's not called the death zone because if we stay too long, somebody might die. If we stay more than a couple of days, everybody will die. That's a scientific fact. Because at that point, you can't eat, you can't sleep, and you're breaking down at a cellular level. Like, I had a little paper cut on my finger, and it lasted six or seven weeks when I was on the mountain between 17,000 feet and the summit. And it never went away. I had to tape my finger shut to keep the wound from bursting open again and again over six weeks. And when I got down to Kathmandu, it, it healed up in two days because there was oxygen. There was energy available to fix it. So nothing gets better at altitude. And above 26,000 feet, you have to get in the death zone and out very quickly uh, because high altitude sickness can creep in several ways. And within hours, you can, you can be in a fatal situation. So it's, it's pretty tough up there. You've talked about what the next Everest is for you or really anyone. It doesn't necessarily have to be a mountain. But in terms of mountain climbing, you've climbed climbed Everest. You've climbed incredible summits around the world. Now, you live here in Colorado. So is there as much enjoyment for you to just go for a hike in Rocky Mountain National Park or having scaled such extreme heights? Does that push your enjoyment capacity for just climbing a regular old mountain. Yeah, I, I was in Rocky Mountain National Park both Saturday and Sunday last week doing average hikes with other folks on, on the trail, and it was fantastic. Um, in the book, I tried to answer the question of why I climb. The question of why do humans climb, well, there are literally stacks and stacks of mountaineering books that poke at that question and, and can't quite answer it because it's kind of an odd thing. It's like, well, it certainly is obvious. You get exercise and you're out in nature and it's beautiful, but you can get a lot of that by hiking or cross-country skiing. So why take on the added risk of high altitude and, and steep mountaineering? And I realized for me that really I'm climbing to seek awe, to go to beautiful places, to have the capacity to move through these beautiful environments. It's kind of the feeling you might get if you look at a sunset or stare at the ocean. I get that whether I'm standing on top of Everest or standing in a meadow in Rocky Mountain National, just two miles from my car. So again, I think you need to find those things that drive your passion and bring you awe and seek them. But by seeking awe, that's what's going to empower you. It's very energizing. It, it lifts you up spiritually and physically, and you're going to need that uplift because there's going to be bad times ahead. So wherever you are, uh, I think getting outside is a great thing, but seek that awe in life. That's what's going to power you through. Do you have a Colorado peak that you're kind of eyeing maybe for the summer, or is there some something in the state that you think, I haven't done that yet. I think that would be pretty cool. Well, I, I, I love Rocky Mountain National. I love Long's Peak. So I haven't been on Long's in a while because of the pandemic and everything. So I'm looking forward to getting back to Long's for sure. Uh, but the new things, I'm actually finding them much more subtle. Um, unnamed 12,000 footers, snowy gullies on the north side of peaks where I haven't been before. So we've been doing some of that with my regular climate partner, Rodney. We've been uh, going to out-of-the-way places and, uh, you know, no-name peaks, literally no name on them, just climbing something that we haven't seen before. So that's what's great about Colorado is there's just hidden gems all over the place. Well, Jim Davidson's latest book is The Next Everest, Surviving the Mountain's Deadliest Day and Finding the Resilience to climb again. There's incredible photographs in here as well. And of course, it's a gripping story and really inspiring. And Jim, thank you very much for being with us at the Radio Book Club. It's been my pleasure. The Radio Book Club is a collaboration between KGNU and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU. As always, my co-host, Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. Thanks, Arsene. Thank you, Maeve.